Hello everyone, it's Joanna, and welcome to Sam Magazine. everybody doing? I'm recording this on a Friday, TGIF. I hope everyone's staying healthy, staying warm. I say warm because in my area, we've been having some frost. Yep, frost. Yeah, the older I get, the harder it is for me to deal with cold. Uh, I have family members who are in Maui right now, and I'm just like, Oh, looking at the palm trees. So enough about me. Today, I get to read uh, an excerpt from this talented author's just released uh, novel in her series. And I get to read a flash fiction short story. I am amazed at authors who write flash fiction. It's being that concise. Uh, not that I say I go on and on and on, but it's flash fiction is another beast. So today's writer, J.P. Joanne McLean, is a best-selling author of urban fantasy and supernatural thrillers. She is a Global Book Award winner, a SIBA finalist, and has received honors from the Eric Hoffer Book Award, the Wishing Shelf Book Awards, the Whistler Independent Book Awards, and the Victoria's Writers Society. Reviewers call her books addictive, smart, and fun. Raised in Toronto, Ontario, JP has lived in various parts of North America, from Mexico and Arizona to Alberta and Ontario. JP holds a Bachelor of Commerce degree from the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. She is a certified scuba diver, an avid gardener, and a voracious reader. She had a successful career in human resources before turning her attention to writing. JP lives with her husband on Denman Island, which is nestled between the coast of British Columbia and Vancouver Island. She enjoys hearing from her readers. You can reach her through her website at jpmcleanauthor.com, and I will have that website in the show notes. Or through her social media sites, you can reach her that way, that way as well. Reviews are always welcomed and greatly appreciated. 
Now I'm going to start with the flash fiction. This story is called Scaredy Cat. I lie in the darkness, straining to hear the dull thump that woke me. Cold sweat prickles my neck. Perhaps it was just the steel roof adjusting to the falling temperature. Pulling the duvet to my chin, I try to be brave and not annoyed that Jack left for a conference before we'd finished unpacking. Wait, there it is again. I hold my breath. Was it a footstep on the roof? Couldn't be. No one could get up there without help. Did Jack put away the ladder after he cleaned the gutters? Shadows from the maple tree in the backyard splay across the ceiling. I roll my head toward the window, wishing I'd close the drapes. The tree's bare branches quiver in a gust of wind. My head snaps to a tick against the glass. A cat's yowl lets loose, followed by a screech and hiss. I jump at the metallic crash of a garbage can toppling at the side of the house. The lid rattles as it settles on the concrete. A vicious shriek erupts, followed by high-pitched yips. A howl echoes through the night, and the yips fade down the street. I let out a breath. Just cats fighting. I laugh at myself and roll over my back to the window and fluff the pillow. With a sigh, I relax into the lull of pre-sleep. And then I hear it again, a heavy thump. My eyes shoot open. It's closer this time. A creak pierces the silence. I know that creak. It's the hinge on the porch's screen door, the back porch, just outside my bedroom. It takes every ounce of courage to roll over. I do it quietly, slowly, so as not to raise awareness of my form in the bed. I clutch the duvet tighter. My gaze slides to the bedside lamp. I snake my hand from under the cover and freeze. If I turn it on and someone outside is watching, they'll know exactly where I am. I yank my arm back under the cover. I peer out the window and try to decipher the shadows that dance across the back porch, distorting the night. The screen door stands ajar as if held there by an invisible hand. Suddenly, the door jerks backward and slams against the railing. I stifle a scream. The door bangs a second time and then abruptly slams shut. I can't move. The night grows still. My heart thuds like it wants out of my chest. A dog barks in the distance. I draw a deep breath and push myself upright. Moonlight beams through the window, transforming my nightshirt into a beacon. I grab my house coat draped over a stack of boxes and shake my head. 
a grown woman afraid of the wind and alley cats. Hope of falling back to sleep anytime soon flees. I pluck my cell phone from the bedside table and navigate by the moon's light to the kitchen. To prove I'm not afraid, I don't spare a glance for the back porch door. When the kettle boils, I drop a chamomile tea bag into my cup and carry it to the living room. Best to leave the lights off so I don't rouse myself any further. I snuggle into the armchair with one hand curled around the hot cup and the other flipping through my Twitter feed. I think about crawling back into my warm bed. I blow across the top of my cup and welcome a yawn, but a floor squeak cuts it short. A jolt of fear hits like a gut punch. Hot tea scalds my hand. The squeak came from the hallway near my bedroom. Setting my tea aside, I listen. It's an old house, I tell myself. You don't yet know its rhythms. A calming breath does little to lift my fear. I steel myself to stand and start across the living room. When the floor squeak comes again, I stop short. Trembling, I tiptoe to the umbrella stand, pull out Jack's baseball bat, and creep down the hall toward the back of the house. The porch's deadbolt is locked. Relief floods my senses. I reach into the bedroom and flip on the light switch. No boogeyman. I chuckle at myself, pull the drapes closed, and turn the light off again before returning to the living room. Hopefully, my nerves will settle by the time I finish my tea. Scaredy cat. As I extend my arm to drop the baseball bat back into the umbrella stand, I glance at the front door's deadbolt. Unlocked. Terror shoots through my veins. Bat in hand, I lock the deadbolt and back into the living room. I bump into the floor lamp and yelp, reaching to steady it. I fumble for the switch and turn it on, vanishing nearby shadows. All the while, I scan the archways, one into the hallway and one into the dining room. The back of my leg touches the chair and I shove it back until it hits the wall. I perch on the chair's edge, gripping the bat with white knuckles. If I hear one more noise, I'm calling 911. It feels like hours pass before I'm brave enough to sit comfortably in the chair. I'm cold. Eventually, I tuck in my legs and wrap them under my housecoat. When the sun finally cracks the horizon, the room's shadows fade. I lean Jack's baseball bat with an easy reach against the side of the chair and drift off to sleep. Hours later, the room is engulfed in sunshine and I have a crick in my neck from sleeping in an awkward position. The night's fear has faded and I feel foolish. 
with a renewed sense of bravado, I tour every room in the house, banishing ghosts and further convincing myself that I'd overreacted. At least I hadn't embarrassed myself by calling 911. After a shower and some breakfast, my mood is lighter, giddy almost, and I dress warmly to head outside for a brisk walk in the fresh air. I jog down the front steps and cut across the driveway, then spot the tin garbage can that the alley cats upset last night. It's upright and standing in the middle of the driveway with its lid in place. A neighbor must have righted it. I trot toward it and grab it by the handles to move it out of the way, but something unexpected rattles inside. I lift the lid and peer down. It's Jack's baseball bat, splintered in two. All right, that was creepy. <laughs> that was creepy. So that is Scaredy Cat. That is a flash fiction story from J.P. McLean. Now I am going to read an excerpt from her latest novel. It literally was just launched two days ago. So the novel is Scorch Mark. It is from her Dark Dream series. So in that series, you have Blood Mark, Ghost Mark, and now Scorch Mark. So this is an excerpt, and uh, yeah, let's have some fun. Okay. Jane is in a race against time to recover a powerful artifact that's fallen into dangerous hands. But first, she must convince a skeptical cop of the supernatural forces at play before a lethal chain of events engulfs them all. Here we go. Now that Jane Walker knew where her mother had been laid to rest, she felt drawn there. It wasn't out of respect or duty. She'd never met her mother in the flesh. It was simply the only thing she could do as the daughter she was never allowed to be. The visceral loathing she felt for Rick Kristen, the man who'd taken her mother away from her, grew deeper as the day of his trial approached. Heat rippled off the asphalt parking lot. It had already been a long, hot ride and they had two hours yet to go. Jane dismounted her Honda Rebel, clad for the opportunity to stretch her legs. Ethan Bryce pulled in beside her and killed the ignition of his fat boy. Across a swath of summer scorched lawn, Windermere Lake sparkled like a cool oasis. This was their last stop before the final leg to the cemetery on the outskirts of Canmore. Alberta. She removed her helmet, shook out her dark, cropped hair, and brushed the road dust from her jeans. Ahead, just before the path to Kinsman Beach, a tailgate party had taken root, spilling onto the lawn behind a row of pickup trucks. The tailgaters, mostly young men flaunting their abs and red solo cups, had confiscated a collection of the park's picnic tables. Music pounded out of speakers, and the scent of barbecue made Jane's mouth water. 
after the helmets were locked, Ethan pulled their towel rolls from one of the saddlebags. He stretched his neck and raked his fingers through his comically flattened hair. Ready? Jane let a saucy smile cross her lips. She'd happily watch Ethan Bryce's backside all day long. Lead the way. Ethan came to stand toe-to-toe with her, his light brown eyes sparkling with mischief. He leaned down and kissed her. I love it when your mind's in the bedroom. He started across the parking lot, and Jane held back a moment, admiring his swagger and the broad shoulders under his leather jacket. She quickly caught up and matched his stride, looking ahead to the lake, anticipating the splash of relief from the cool water. Her focus was on the lake, so she wasn't paying attention to the tailgaters as she and Ethan passed. But when Ethan took her hand, an unusual gesture for him, she glanced at him and then at the men who had stopped their parking. One by one, they nudged each other and in turn stared at her. Startled, Jane looked away. You know them? Ethan asked. No. Goosebumps skated across her arms. Jane surreptitiously checked her boots and jacket, smoothed her hair, searching for something, anything to explain their attention, anything other than the one thing the goosebumps foretold. Ethan's carefree smile hid the tension she felt in the firm grip of his hand as he wove his way through the families who laid claim to patches of sand with beach blankets and umbrellas. They followed the shore to the thinning edge of the crowd, far from the tailgaters. That was weird, wasn't it? Jane said. Depends. Ethan kicked off his boots. Regular weird or your stratosphere weird? She'd already considered how a handful of men she'd never met looked at her like they knew her, like they'd seen her before or met her ghost. They know our rides now, she said. We can't change that. Let's cool off and get out of here. Ethan kept an eye on the distant parking lot as he stripped down to his boxers, but he left his t-shirt on. Unwilling to endure the stairs, his burned, scarred stomach would draw. Jane removed everything but a tank top and bikini bottoms an unthinkable disrobing had she still borne the blood-red birthmarks that had haunted her until the year before. The final birthmark had disappeared on her 25th birthday. She glanced back, relieved the tailgaters hadn't followed. Erase you, she said, and took off for the water at a run. Ethan laughed, a competitor through and through. She rushed into the lake, high-stepping until the water was above her knees and then dove under. The water felt like an ice-cold beer on a sweltering day, a delicious quenching for her overheated skin. They kept to the shallows, sparing an occasional glance at their belongings. Afterwards, they lay on their towels, drying off. Another dream's coming. I feel it. 
Jane hadn't had a visiting dream since the night she'd learned what had become of the man she'd once known as Buddy, a man whose life she'd accidentally and irrevocably altered. He was now Dylan O'Brien, an undercover cop. That was five months ago, but her reprieve was over. Because the tailgaters? Why else would those men behave like they'd seen me before? Ethan scrubbed his face with his hands. Accepting Jane's visiting dreams was easier for him when the dreams were dormant. Once they started up, they didn't stop until whatever events Jane was destined to witness had finished playing out. There was no avoiding it. Jane's dreams identified her as a Una Testigo, a witness in the Inca tradition. They opted to take a longer route back to the bikes to avoid the pickup trucks, but the party had been packed up and the trucks were gone when they returned to the parking lot. With sighs of relief, they remounted and continued on their way. The heat of the day was behind them when they rolled into the Canmore Cemetery. Jane had a map of the grounds and the location of her mother's grave. They parked the bikes nearby, left their helmets on the seats, and searched the headstones. It shouldn't be too hard to find, given the recent exhumation. The Crown Prosecutor needed to establish that Jane was Rebecca Morrow's daughter. DNA testing was the only way. Rebecca's grave marker was a flat black stone embedded in the ground above the still-mounded earth. Jane brushed the dust off the polished stone. Other than her name, Rebecca's birth and death dates were the only adornment. Not a beloved wife or a cherished mother. Not resting in peace. In the public's eye, Rebecca was a murderer who would have been convicted had she not taken her own life. None of that was true. Rebecca was beloved by Jane's father, David Banner. She was cherished by Jane, who'd only seen her mother in dreams. She was at peace because everyone Rebecca had cared about knew she was innocent of David's homicide. And before she was murdered, she'd arranged for the blood marks that protected Jane from the man who'd killed Jane's parents, Rick Kristen, a deluded and corrupt psychiatrist who treated Rebecca against her will. It pained Jane to know Rick would never be held accountable for his parents' murders. He'd taken her family from her. She'd never get to know them. She'd never feel their embrace or hear their words of praise or encouragement, things most families took for granted. But killing her parents hadn't been a thorough enough erasure for Rick. He wanted Jane dead, too, severing all the connections to his crimes. So the only justice Jane could get was a guilty verdict at his upcoming trial for her aggravated kidnapping and attempted murder. 10 to 25 years behind bars wasn't nearly enough. Jane and Ethan continued on to the Super 8 hotel they'd booked. The sun had slipped beneath the horizon, painting the sky in burnt orange. Ethan joined her on the balcony and handed her a corona. He glimpsed the photo she'd been staring at on her phone, 
It was a snapshot of the cryptic note that had been slid under her apartment door in the days following the police takedown at the warehouse. I'm not done with you yet. The arrests at the warehouse had ended a drug gang's hold on Riptide, the bar Ethan managed, but they'd earned her a handful of new enemies. She still didn't know which one had sent her the note, but it achieved its intended effect. She turned from the rail and took the beer. Thanks. Their balcony faced the parking lot. Do you think any of those pickup trucks are from the lake? Ethan glanced down at the bleached asphalt. We're in Alberta. Everyone drives a pickup. They saw our rides, our license plates. They could find us. Not at this hotel. Even if one of them was a cop, the best they could do is get our Vancouver addresses. He tipped back his beer. You hungry? She faked a smile and went along with his change of subject. Who could blame him? Thoughts banging around in her head were probably the same as his and not fit for human consumption. They finished their beers and headed out on foot to find Patrino's Steakhouse and Pub, which met their criteria. Nearby and not fancy. They bypassed the pool tables, several big screen TVs, and were seated on an outdoor patio where they ordered the pizza special and two beers. Ethan scrutinized the people at the other tables before his gaze strayed into the bar and the baseball game on the TV. His shoulders finally relaxed. Jane hated that her dreams caused him such stress. Whoever said sharing a burden lessened the load had lied. Jane absorbed every detail of the restaurant and the other diners. Other than the color of their license plates, she couldn't make out a difference between Albertans and British Columbians. It was the first time she'd been outside British Columbia, at least that she could remember. She'd been born in Alberta at the Wild Rose Psychiatric Hospital near Banff, but Rick had made sure there were no records of her birth. She had been less than a day old when she was found abandoned at the Joyce Skytrain Station in Vancouver and taken to BC Children's Hospital, making Vancouver her official place of birth. Back at the hotel, Jane climbed onto the bed and snuggled into Ethan, draping an arm across his chest. She'd been looking forward to this time away with him for weeks, but the tailgaters had ruined it. Ethan didn't say anything, but Jane knew he was thinking about the last time she dreamed. She felt the weight of it. She'd been trapped in a dream and couldn't wake up. Ethan had to watch helplessly for days while she lay comatose. Not knowing if she would survive the dream had left its mark on both of them. On any other night, they'd be getting busy, rolling in the sheets but the tension of what was to come had flatlined their libidos. And if fear of the unknown hadn't done it, then Jane joining him in bed, fully dressed, with her knife secured in her boot, would have. But it wasn't like she had a choice, because if the dream started up again, 
whatever she wore to bed was what she'd be wearing in the dream. She was done being caught underdressed and unarmed. If she was destined to meet the tailgaters tonight in a visiting dream, she'd be ready for a fight. Chapter 2 Sadie Sadie Prescott stretched out on the king-size bed, surrounded by a sea of pillows. She smoothed her hands over the cool 600-thread-count sheets. Aircon droned in the background, releasing a steady supply of chilled air and enough white noise to drown out neighboring hotel guests. She inhaled the rich scent of a properly brewed Americano that wafted over from the silver room service tray. And then she opened her eyes. Daydreaming about her former life was how Sadie dealt with the relentless heat and the a-hole upstairs, stomping around in construction boots. How? Who was she fooling? Fantasizing was how she dealt with any stress these days. In her weaker moments, she longed for the old Sadie, the one who earned a grand for a few hours of making some sad sack feel like a million bucks. She sighed at the memory of the high-end hotels that Cynthia Lee, her former madame, insisted upon for the students in her teacher's pet escort business. It took effort to remind herself why she'd given it up. Though it hadn't been even a year, the life she'd led felt like the distant past, like someone else's life. But one thing that hadn't changed was her distaste for mornings. If the goddess had intended for her to wake early, Sadie wouldn't need the alarm on her phone. She dragged herself out of bed, and while the coffee brewed, she signed into the new bookkeeping module she'd started yesterday. A few hours in, Sadie lifted the hair from the back of her neck and turned her face to the small fan she'd set up on a stack of books. The breeze blew her blonde curls away from her forehead, providing a little relief from the suffocating heat. But it did nothing to lower the temperature in her pint-sized apartment. She pushed away from the laptop and stretched her arms over her head. With the exception of the inconsiderate neighbor living above her, she felt sorry for the tenants on the upper floors of the Victorian mansion that had been butchered into apartments. At least she was in the basement, where it was coolest. Coolest? The word caught in her throat. Coolest level of hell, maybe. It was still early afternoon, and she'd already finished the module. Tomorrow, after she took the end-of-section test, she could put another tick mark in the program calendar. If she didn't run into a roadblock, she was on track to finish her accounting certificate early next year. She'd then be a certified bookkeeper. She couldn't wait to get it behind her and start earning real money again. Living on a tight budget was an oxymoron, not her idea of living. She figured she'd earn the break and a few hours at Kitsilano Beach would lift her spirits. She changed into a bikini, pulled a short dress over top, 
and dug out a sun hat from under a stack of laundry. After tossing her purse and phone into her tote, she slid into her sandals. Too bad Jane's away, Sadie thought as she passed by her friend's apartment, which was right next door. Sadie would have dragged her along. Come to think of it, she should have heard from her by now. Sadie knew Jane had been anxious about her road trip. She hadn't had one of her paralytic dreams in a while. But the narcolepsy never left her in peace for long. It was why Jane lived in a perpetual readiness, always sleeping behind solid doors with quality locks. That was something she couldn't be sure of on the road. At least Ethan was with her. He'd learned firsthand how vulnerable Jane was when she fell into one of her paralytic dreams. Though Jane had stubbornly resisted his help, he'd stepped in. And Jane had let him, which was a minor miracle. Sadie walked a few blocks to the beach. At the water's edge, she removed her dress and stuffed it in her bag. Her Tommy Bahamas cut the glare from the water's surface as she strolled through the shallows up to her thighs, sandals in hand, cooling her legs. Afterwards, she found a shade dappled spot in the sand near the pathway, away from the marauding gangs of kids with their water cannons. She laid out her towel, set her hat and sunglasses aside, and lay on her back, using her bunched-up dress as a pillow. Music streamed through her earbuds, pushing the surrounding voices and laughter into the background. A light breeze caressed her body. Her thoughts turned to Dylan O'Brien. After months of creative negotiating, he'd finally broken down her resistance, and she agreed to a date. They'd seen each other a handful of times since then. There was no denying their chemistry, but she couldn't bring herself to sleep with him. So far, he'd been patient, a perfect gentleman, which only made it worse. She promised herself she wouldn't sleep with anyone again before telling them how she used to earn her living. Dylan would dump her ass the day she did, and she really liked the guy. It's why she'd been putting off the inbedible. He worked undercover, but he was still a cop. Thou shall not date a former hooker, was probably a commandment in her rookie handbook, printed in bold and underlined. Soon, she told herself for what felt like the hundredth time, she'd tell Dylan soon. She picked up her phone and skimmed through the latest videos on social media, but her scrolling jerked to a stop at a newsfeed headline. Local kidnapping case heads to court. She clicked on the link. The story was a recap of the charges against Dr. Rodrick Atkins and his accomplice, Andrew Ness, the men she and Jane knew as Rick Kristen and Andy Ness. They'd pleaded innocent, which was bullshit, and the reporter's liberal use of the word alleged pissed her off. Another link led to a related article, The Tragic Life of Joyce Walker. Sadie bolted upright. Oh, shit. Joyce was Jane's legal name, an unnecessary reminder of the place where she'd been abandoned. 
She skimmed the article. Jane's photo was a deer in the headlight shot of her in the back seat of a cruiser on the night the warehouse was raided. The night Sadie had met Dylan. Jane looked like a criminal in the photo. The article included a grainy newspaper image of the Joyce Sky Train Station and rehashed the story of the night she'd been found. It sensationalized the prominent birthmarks she'd been bored with and hadn't stopped there. The reporter had uncovered the news stories of the fire that had killed her adoptive parents and the car accident that had taken the couple who had fostered her. Nice. He'd dug deep, and it was going to hurt. Chloe? The man's voice, coupled with the name he'd called her, sent her heart racing. Chloe was her teacher's pet name, and when she'd be one of Cynthia's escorts. She shielded her eyes and squinted up. I thought that was you. How are you, doll? His unapologetic gaze crawled over her body. She searched her memory for the name of the doughy, middle-aged man standing at the foot of her towel. Not that he would likely have used his real name. I'm good, thanks. Keeping up your grades? A lecherous smile gave away his thoughts. I'm out of the business, have been for months. He bobbed his head. That explains why I couldn't find your profile. You live around here? Sadie smiled, neither yes nor no. So much for a peaceful break on the beach. She remembered he liked to role play as a visiting professor who lectured on insurance fraud an infraction he considered on par with taking a life. His name came to her. Brian, is it? How about I come by your place? For old time's sake. How about you move along, Sadie said. His smile faded. Seems only fair you adjust the fee, though, now that you don't have a pimp fronting the business. Less for me to pay, more for you to keep. A win-win. Sadie took a beat. Doughboy's attitude needed an adjustment. She raised her phone and snapped a photo of him. Brian Maddock, have I got that right? He laughed, but the tone rang hollow. You should treat your customers with more respect. He narrowed his eyes. I'll see you around, Chloe. And that is the excerpt from J.P. McLean's latest novel, just released a few days ago, Scorchmark. It's interesting when you're reading someone's work, you, you want to give the work the respect it deserves. And after a while, you forget that you're even reading. You're just, you're pulled into the story. Very good, J.P., very good as always. So people, J.P. McLean, I'm going to give you her website. I'm just going to spell it out here. It is J.P., as in Paul, McLean. Now, McLean is spelt M-C-L-E-A-N, author.com. So her website, J.P. McLean, author.com. 
and I will have that in the show notes. All right, everyone have a good weekend. Stay safe, stay healthy, give your loved ones a hug, and I'll catch you next time. All right, bye-bye.